I'm pretty sure that there's no doubt in any of our minds that we live in a chaotic time. Uh, there's chaos in medicine, there's chaos socially, there's chaos politically, and there's chaos in a lot of other different ways. We just seem like our, we live in a nation and in a world that's divided. We're divided by masks, we're divided by vaccines, we're divided by a virus. We're divided by race, we're divided by gender, we're divided by culture, we're divided by religion. And just so many other things in our world divide us and, and cause chaos. But as we narrow the focus of the chaos toward kingdom work, and by that I mean religious or spiritual application, opposition to God's work is as active today as it's ever been. Before, When we read in the Bible about persecution of God's work, we think, well, that was in the Bible. Did you know what's going on here today as well? Uh, in 2015, there's, and it, there's a YouTube video out there, and I don't encourage you to watch it, but it is out there. It, it is of ISIS, the terrorist group. They take 21 Egyptian, I think it's from 2015, they took 21 Egyptian men down to the seacoast. And they told them that if they didn't renounce their faith in Jesus, they were going to be headed, be beheaded. And they said, we will let you live if you're willing to say that Allah is the one God and Muhammad was his final prophet. Other than that, we're going to behead you. And all 21 of those men were beheaded for Jesus Christ. And what their last words were, Jesus Christ, help me. And while we may not have persecution like that in America yet, and I'll use that word yet, opposition to a biblical worldview is certainly growing louder and louder, isn't it? It's becoming more vocal, even in what we would call a Christian country. And we all know that we are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, right? The question that I have for myself and for you this morning is, where do we find our voice? With all the noise and the loud voices out there, how do we make a difference? As Christ followers, how are we supposed to respond to the loud voices that are out there, to the oppositions that, opposition that is out there? And may I answer these questions with just one word? The way that we are supposed to respond is with boldness. We are called to be bold when it comes to our witness. And I know it sounds simple, but that's exactly what this world needs to hear, is a bold voice for Jesus Christ, a bold witness for Jesus Christ. But first of all, before we define what boldness is, let's define what boldness is not. Boldness is not rudeness. Have y'all ever, ever met people that are just loud and rude? You know, it doesn't necessarily, you don't just pick a subject and they can be loud and they can be rude about it. Christians are never called to be rude. Did y'all know that rudeness is not a fruit of the Spirit? Rudeness is not a way in which Christians should act and in which Christians should behave. Christ followers are never called to be rude or discourteous to anybody. Not only is boldness not rudeness, boldness is also not loudness. 
what I've about decided after I watch the news and uh, watch videos on the internet and things like that with all the things that are going on today. Somebody must have taught people somewhere way back, if you don't have a good argument and when in doubt, yell. Because that's kind of the way it seems like people are. The weaker the argument is, the louder they holler. I uh, sometimes wondered about preachers, you know, preachers that yell and holler. If you don't have a good, uh, if you don't have a good thesis, then yell and holler. And there's a time and place for a preacher to holler. But loudness does not necessarily mean boldness. And sometimes volume is mis misinterpreted as being correct. We say, well, they're the loudest, so they may, must be the most conviction, and they must be the one that's right. Well, I remember a Peanuts cartoon from years ago. Linus and Lucy are arguing, you know, the brother Lucy and Linus. And Linus tells Lucy, he says, you're not always right. He said, you just always sound right. And that's kind of the way it is with folks that are loud. Just because they're loud doesn't mean that they're right. It just sometimes means that they sound right. It's just that's the voice that you're hearing come out of all the noise. And while our emotions may get the best of us, and we just want to spout out in anger. And can I admit to you, I've done that. And after I've done that, I've regretted that. And I've said, that's not the way that a Christian's supposed to behave. As a matter of fact, Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 15.1, he says, a soft answer turns away anger. You want to mess with somebody that's angry and mad at you, be nice to them. That'll just mess them up every time. They don't know how to respond to niceness. But what we want to do is, if they yell at us, we want to yell louder, right? And that's not a Christian response. That's not boldness. You know what boldness is? Boldness is, first of all, a lack of hesitation or fear in the face of risk or danger. Boldness is knowing that there's a danger that lies ahead, but we step into it anyway. And the best example I can give of that is if you take a building that's on fire, and if you tell the firefighters there's a baby or a person trapped in that building, they go, they go into that building to try to save them, don't they? That's boldness. They know there's danger there. They know they could get hurt, but they go forward anyway. Boldness is a lack of hesitation or fear in moving forward to do what's right. Secondly, boldness is a refusal to be held back by the opinion or judgment of other people. We don't worry a whole lot about what other people think. I'm 57 years old, and you know what I've observed over 57 years? I have observed that more times than not, the majority is usually wrong. Have you observed that? Quite often, the people, the majority a lot of times are wrong. And you know why it's easy to go with majority? because that's the easiest thing to do. There's comfort, there's safety in numbers. You think, well, all these people couldn't be wrong where they could be. Y'all ever heard a little critter called a lemming? A lemming is a little brown or a little white animal, depending on what time of year it is. They're mammals. And science doesn't know why they do this, but every so often, lemmings will just leap off a cliff to their suicide. They, they, they just die. They just jump off the cliff. And, and we don't know why they do that. Science has no idea why they do that. They don't know if it's some kind of internal population control. But each lemming will just follow the next lemming 
right off the cliff. And can I tell you that that is what this country is doing right now? We are like lemmings following someone right in front of us off the cliff. Now, we may be in agreement, but you know what? Whether you're in agreement or not, when you get to the bottom of your cliff, you're just as dead, right? So boldness is refusing to be held back by the opinion or judgment of others. It's understanding what is right. It's understanding what God says. And we let God deal with the consequences. Charles Stanley says it's our job to be obedient and let God deal with the consequences. God is responsible for the consequences of our obedience. I am responsible for the consequences of my disobedience, right? Boldness is a lack of hesitation or fear in the face of risk or danger. It's also a refusal to be held back by the opinion or the judgment of others. And another word for boldness is courage. Just being brave, being courageous, standing up for what's right, no matter how much it might cost us. And the question for the Christian is, where does true boldness come from? Where do we get it? How do you find it? What do we need to do in order to have it? If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4 this morning is going to be our text. And we're not going to go verse by verse through this text. We're going to look at verses 1 through 31, but we're just going to kind of make some points as we move along. I'm going to just try to tell the story. But before I tell you what happens in Acts chapter 4, we have to set the context of Acts chapter 4. And the context of chapter 4 is found in Acts 3, verses 1 to 10. And let me tell you what happens there. Peter and John are going to the temple for prayer service. They're going to church. That's the way we, we would use that in our language. And as they were getting ready to go in through the temple gate, they ran into a they were they met a guy there that was crippled. He couldn't walk. We find out he's been crippled all of his life for 40 years. Uh, chapter 4 will tell us. And this crippled fellow was there begging money. You look at their world in that day, there was no disability. There was no welfare. There was no food stamps. The only way that if they didn't have any money, they, the only thing they could do was act, beg. And what better place to beg than at the church house, right? Church people are generally have good hearts and are willing to help people. So that's what this guy's done. And Peter and John run across him, and it says that Peter looked him in the eye and says, look up here. He says, I don't have any gold or silver. And boy, I wonder if that guy's just, oh, man. But what I have, Peter says, I'm going to give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And so even though this guy has been totally unable to walk for 40 years, he immediately stands up and starts walking and jumping and shouting and praising the Lord. I've got a sermon I preach out of this entitled, The Man Who Asked for Alms and Got Legs. Uh, he, he was asking for alms, but he ended up getting legs. And he's walking and dancing. And for the first time in his life, he can actually go into the temple where he has watched people go for the last 40 years because he's never been able to go. Why? Because he was crippled, and crippled people, diseased people, were unclean. And so they weren't able to go into the temple. So for the first time, this guy can go into the temple. He's praising God, he's shouting. And now think about this. Let's say when we come to church every Sunday morning, there's a crippled person outside. He couldn't walk. 
And he's laying on his mat right outside the door, begging every Sunday morning. And for 40 years, this guy's been begging. Every Sunday morning, that's where he is. But all of a sudden, that 40-year-old cripple comes dancing and praising the Lord coming into the church building. You think that would cause a ruckus? You think that would, people saying, wow, a crowd gathers. And so Paul, Peter, Peter rather, being the preacher that he is, a good preacher doesn't let a crowd go to waste, amen? Uh, Peter starts preaching. And he starts telling folks, you know, it wasn't us that healed this man. It was the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And a lot of folks are getting saved. Uh, revival breaks out as a result of this miracle. So we come to chapter 4 and verse 1. And looking at verses 1 through 4, the opposition shows up. Before we jump into this, can I tell you that kingdom work, when God's kingdom work is moving forward, Satan is not going to stand still. Satan is going to mount an opposition, and so he does. Beginning in verse 1, Now as they spoke to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So Satan is not going to allow God's work to go untethered and un, uh, untouched, unopposed. People are coming to the Lord left and right. Miracles are being done. 3,000 folks were saved on the day of Pentecost. A big work of God's going on in Jerusalem. And so these religious leaders, the religious establishment, it says, was greatly disturbed or greatly annoyed or greatly displeased. And they fully intended to stop this little insurrection as quickly as they could. They intended to stop this rebellion in its tracks. Notice the end of verse 3. Or the end of verse 2, rather. They're disturbed that they... Notice what Peter and John taught. They taught the people and preached to Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The early church, the apostles, preached the resurrection, not rules. The foundation of the early Christians' message was the resurrection. By the way, that should be our uh, message today. I can get bold when it comes to preaching the resurrection of Jesus. It's a little harder to be bold about a bunch of rules, right? So they weren't annoyed about rules. They like rules. We'll find out how much they like rules here in just a minute. But they're upset because they're preaching about the resurrection, and not only the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. These religious leaders, they've already crucified Jesus. They thought, man, I thought we were done with this Jesus guy. And now here these Jesus, the whole city's in an uproar over Jesus. And so verse 3, they laid hands on them. They put him in custody till the next day. They put him in jail, verse 4. But, or how be it, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The religious leaders wanted to stop this insurrection in its tracks, but God had other ideas. God kept right on working. You know God will keep on working no matter how much Satan opposes it. 
Don't matter how much Satan tries to stop it, God's, he, God's got a way. He'll work around it. He'll keep on going. The church in Acts chapter 2, it said 3,000. Now here in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says 5,000 men. That's not including women and children. Commentators think there's probably 10,000 people in the church at this point. It's exploding from that little 120 people that started on the day of Pentecost. Well, we find now that Peter and John are going to be bold in spite of the opposition. Look beginning at verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were on the family or of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, I want to stop right there. Do you notice the firepower that's here in this meeting? Caiaphas, Annas, the high priest, the most powerful people in the Jewish religious system were there. The, the religious leaders are there, the chief priests, and I'm pretty sure the not-so-chief priests. All the leaders are there. They're going to put a stop to this right now. They've had enough of this Jesus. They're going to stop it. And they say, ask Peter and John, now whose power are you working under? Whose authority are you doing these things under? Now you remember Peter? The last time Peter was in the vicinity of these fellows was at Jesus' arrest. And you know what Jesus did? Or Peter did there? Peter was afraid of a little girl, remember? And he denied Jesus not once, but three times. So what's Peter going to do this time? Y'all, we got a different Peter. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to that phrase. We'll come back to it. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. In other words, if we're on trial here because we healed a crippled man, we did something nice for a crippled man, if you want to know how we did that, verse 10, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter says, you want to know whose power and in whose name we operate? It's Jesus. And just in case you don't know which Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. And just in case you don't know if it's Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter says, let me be plain. That's whose name we are working under. That's whose name, that's whose authority that we are working under. That's who we teach. That's who we believe. That's what we do. And he says, you crucified him. You rejected him. And then the next verse. Twelve. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth is my Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is my Savior. 
Jesus of Nazareth is the power and authority and rule in which we do our ministry and we do our work. He said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You meant it to be bad. God made it be something good. Doesn't this show the sovereignty of God? Remember what I said a while ago that Satan has always tried to stop the kingdom of God, kingdom work? He thought he had it stopped at the crucifixion. But God. If you ever have time and you don't have anything to do, get on Google or get out a concordance and look how many times in Scripture the phrase, but God, comes up. It's amazing how many times, if I was a good pastor, I would have counted all that and I'd have given you a good answer, but there's some homework for you. Go find out how many times. But it's amazing how many times things are going bad, things are hopeless, then but God. You remember those westerns we used to watch? The Indians are attacking a ranch, and it seems like that things are just about to go bad. They've got everything surrounded. Uh, they're down to their last couple of bullets in the, in the house, and things are fixing to go wrong. And all of a sudden, you hear from the outside that trumpet, da 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 and you go, whoo, but the Calvary. It's amazing how many times in Scripture God is the Calvary. But God raised him from the dead. And you know what else Peter does? This is amazing. The last time Peter talks to these, has been around these guys, he ran. This time he stands up, he stands firm, and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. You Jews have arrested or have rejected him. He says, but there is no name under which we can be saved but Jesus Christ. You know what Peter does? He's offering an invitation to the very ones that crucified Jesus. Isn't that bravery? Isn't that boldness? Doesn't that fit as boldness the way we defined it a while ago? Moving forward in the face of risk, having courage, Fighting the majority rule. Peter was so bold. Peter had boldness. But notice, the where did Peter get his boldness, you ask? Back in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where Peter got his boldness. He was freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that a little bit more. I want you to remember from this section so far, Peter's boldness and where he got that boldness. He got that boldness when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, and before I move on to that, you say, why in the world would Peter offer Caiaphas and Annas and all those folks an opportunity to be saved? It's never wrong to realize that God's grace is for everybody, right? It may be the most unlikely person that would receive God's grace. It's just desperate to hear it. We're to offer it to everybody. And I understand that to be saved, you've got to be called. I understand all that. But you know what? I don't know who God's called. You don't either. A lot of times they don't even know they've been called. Amen? I've had inmates come to prison. I, about three weeks ago, there was a young gang member. And he just came because they hadn't been out of their cells for a while, so it was something to do. And I, I watched him the whole time that we were 
going through it. And we were going through this right here. And he started out like this. So I knew he wasn't interested. But before it was over, he was like this. And after we got done with our service, he came to me and said, can we talk some more? He said, I've never heard this before. And so I've been able to talk to him and work with him. And he's still, I don't think, very close to trusting Jesus as his Savior. But he's closer than he was a few weeks ago. God's grace is for everybody. Even the ones that crucified Jesus. So, what happens? We're going to find now the opposition is paralyzed. Verse 13. Now when they, that is the religious establishment, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been standing with them, they could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves. So these religious folks, they said something's going on here. These are just fishermen. These are just, how are they speaking with such boldness? Weren't these the guys that were with Jesus? Here's a question. Can people tell you've been with Jesus? Can people tell that I've been with Jesus? That's a whole other sermon. We're not going to preach it. But I, I need to bring that up. Who are these people? What? And by the way, the crippled guy standing right there so they can't reject. They can't say, well, you guys are just imagining this. Because the guy just wasn't like a two-day cripple. He was a 40-year cripple. Everybody knew who this guy was. They couldn't deny it, so you know what they do? They send Peter and John out, and they have a holy huddle. They, uh, they, they get together, and they say, guys, we need a plan. We've got to figure out what it is we're going to do. Verse 16, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. In other words, y'all, we got to say something. But we can't deny a miracle, and it's a notable miracle. Do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? This same religious establishment wanted to kill Lazarus too. Do you know why? Because everybody was wanting to go see Lazarus. you got to get rid of the evidence, right, if you're trying to disprove a theory. And so they said, we can't deny it. Something's been done, so here's what we're going to do. Verse 17, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man at his name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. I can see Caiaphas there with his hands on his hips and saying, you listen to me. You don't preach in Jesus' name anymore or you're going to be in trouble. You understand that? You got that? You listen to me. That's the best they can do because they don't want to do anything else because they don't want to make the people mad, right? So, look at Peter's answer. Peter says in verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I will give you a plank's paraphrase of what they said. Caiaphas said, you don't preach the name of Jesus anymore or you're going to be in trouble. Peter says, let me tell you what, Caiaphas. 
If it comes down between making a choice, between listening to what you say and what God says, God is going to win every time. It's not even close. It's no contest. We're not going to listen to you. You remember Daniel and Daniel 1 when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been taken to Babylon? And the first thing the Babylonians wanted to do was to make them good little Babylonians. And they were going to feed them the Babylonian food. But it was against the Hebrew religious uh, God-approved diet. And so Daniel 1 verse 8, we won't read it now for time's sake. You can go back and read it Tell I'm not making it up. But Daniel, Scripture tells us, Daniel purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to eat the king's meat. That purposed in his heart means he made up his mind that it didn't matter what everybody else was doing. He was going to do what God told him to do. You go over to Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar built this great big statue that represented him and gave rules that said when the music starts, everybody bow down to this statue. It's basically saying you're all going to bow down and worship me is what he's saying. Well, three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young men, they said, we're not going to bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar said, maybe you didn't understand me. I like you guys. And he had. Nebuchadnezzar had given them, had blessed them, and they, they had done well in the Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be on his side. So he says, I'm going to give you another chance. Maybe you didn't hear. When the music starts, bow down. Otherwise, I'm going to pitch you in that fiery furnace in there. You remember what they said? They said, King, we don't even have to think about this. Our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Isn't that what Peter's saying here? Caiaphas, Adam, y'all might have a lot of power. Y'all might have a lot of pull. But my God can deliver me from you. I'm, I'm going to go with God. That's what I'm going to do. Verse 21. But when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. The people are there praising. Hey, praise the Lord. They, they've healed this man. They, this religious group realized all they had were threats because Peter and John at this moment in time held the upper hand. So they threatened him again and they said, y'all go home and don't, don't come back anymore. Well, when Peter and John are let go, verse 23, they go to the church. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. And you know what the church does? When they hear everything that Peter and John has, have gone through, they did the most curious thing. They prayed. They made a prayer. They raised their voice to God with one accord. The first thing they do is they talk about the attributes of God. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stands, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
For truly your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined here to be done. Now look at verse 29. Now, Lord, look on our threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This church's prayers relied on God's attributes, who God was, what he has done, and what they knew that he would do, it was rooted in Scripture, because they're quoting Scripture in verses 25 and 26. And then they put the mission of God above their comfort. Notice what they did not say in verse 29. They now they said, now Lord, look on their threats and keep us safe. Lord, look at their threats and keep us from harm. Lord, look at their threats and don't let us get hurt. That's not what they prayed. They prayed, Lord, look at their threats and give us what? Boldness. Nowhere in the New Testament do you read God's people asking for comfort, for safety. But all through the New Testament they ask for boldness and that God's will would help them. Look at the result of this prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were, were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. I just hope that just once in my life, I would love to be part of a prayer meeting that is a prayer meeting wrapped up it was given with such force, the Holy Spirit shows up and shakes the place. Wouldn't that be cool? The Holy Spirit, you know, we pray for the Holy Spirit to fill the place when we worship. But I just wonder if it did, if it wouldn't scare us to death. That'd be, it'd be out of our control at that point. The place is shaken. They were, notice the phrase again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And since they were filled with the Holy Spirit... They spoke the word of God with boldness. As we wrap this up, we're going to bring all this together into one little paragraph. The word boldness is used twice in this chapter. It's used in verse 13, referring to Peter and John. It's also used in verse 31, referring to the church. In both instances, if you'll notice, the boldness came from a filling of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Both places they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke with boldness. Now I need to do a little bit of theology. You say, well I thought when we're saved the Holy Spirit enters us. I thought they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They were. What this is talking about is a fresh empowerment. It's talking about being filled and then staying filled. It's talking about being refilled. Did you know scripture tells us the reason we don't have the Holy Spirit is because we don't ask? Jesus says in his last prayer in the book of John at the Last Supper, he says, ask of my Father and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. 
It's there. But I'm and people today, they try to act and be bold in their own power. They try to act and be bold in their own knowledge. They try to act and be bold with all the technology that they've got. There are churches today that totally depend on their technology to have their church service. And there's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. But let me tell you what. That doesn't touch what the power of the Holy Spirit can do. If we're going to have true boldness to take and be a gospel witness for the city of Fairview, we need a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We need to be filled again. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside you. But now you need to empty yourself so that the Holy Spirit can fill you and so that you can be have a fresh empowering. And you say, well, why don't we have that? For most of us, we're missing a key ingredient. There's a key ingredient to me that keeps us from being filled with the Holy Spirit every day. And you know what that key ingredient is? You'll have to come back next week and find out. <laughs> no, I'll give you, I'll, 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 it's the fear of the Lord. We don't, we're going to find out the result. We're going to keep on, keep, we're going to, Continue this narrative next week. And a phrase, the fear of the Lord, is going to come into this conversation. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking about what does it mean to have fear of the Lord? What is it? Why do we need a fear of the Lord? How do we get the fear of the Lord? What happens to us when we get the fear of the Lord? Because I think that's what's missing for me and for you maybe and for a lot of us as we don't live our lives in the fear of the Lord. So that's where we're headed. But my question to you this morning is this. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Can I tell you that in the middle of all the chaos that is our world today, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior and as your rock and as your fortress, you're in a heap of trouble, as my dad used to say. Where else are you going to find rest? Where else are you going to find comfort? Where else are you going to find peace? Where else are you going to find boldness? If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, it's quite simple. Realize you're a sinner. Let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. And if he has convinced you and convicted you of the fact you're a sinner, understand that you can't save yourself. God knew that, so he sent Jesus to save you. To die on the cross, his blood sacrifice pays the debt that we owe. And what we need to do is simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Please save me. And scripture says he will. That's a prayer that God will answer. So if you need to do that, man, let's do business with God today. Let's get that done. And maybe you've done that and you've tried to work under your own power. Maybe you've tried to find boldness, but the noise of the world is shutting you out. Maybe what you need is a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. Maybe what you need this morning is to empty yourself and let the Spirit fill you. If you don't empty yourself, there's no room for the Holy Spirit to come in. So maybe you need to do business with the Lord at your pew while we sing this invitation song. Maybe you need to come forward and take your next steps with the church. Is it 
you need to be baptized? Do you need to join the church? Do you need to be a Sunday school teacher? What is it that's your next step? Can I encourage you? Whatever your next step is, be bold. You got the Holy Spirit on your side. Let's operate with the Holy Spirit. 